Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bold Beautiful Borderline podcast. My name is Lori, and today we have a special guest, Emily, with us, who's going to be sharing about her story. And before we start, I'm just wanting to thank our brand new Patreon member, Grace. Thank you so much for your support. We really, really appreciate it. So, Emily, I, I'm assuming I can say you're a super feeler. I don't know if that's... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Emily is a regular member of our super feeler community, and we absolutely love that she's always been there and will be there forever, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, Emily, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, why you're here, what you want to talk about? Sure. Um, I basically remember just dysregulation growing up, like I, every single possible form of dysregulation, you name it, I was probably doing it. Um, and I think I went through therapists faster than I grew out of shoes or clothing. Um, like I've I've never heard, I've never heard that metaphor before. And I kind of love that. (laughs) My parents would try and I would sit there. I got really great at the silent game, which also helped interactions with my brother. Um, and then they'd, switch me. Um, but I just remember having a lot of anxiety, a lot of perfectionism and a lot of like trouble around eating behaviors that later also developed into an eating disorder, but I didn't know how to self-regulate at all. So I think I started self-harming probably by the time I was 12, I was still in day camp. I all I remember is that I was in day camp. Mm, Yeah. So pretty young don't remember anything about it except that I was in day camp for whatever reason. And when did your, I know your eating disorders is like a big part of your journey. So when did your eating disorder behaviors start at the, around the same time as the self-harm? Before actually, Mm. I think it would be considered ARFID now, potentially. Um, What's ARFID? Like avoidant restrictive. Oh, okay. And like, I was like really afraid of like a lot of things. Also, I have OCD and it's been finally diagnosed. My parents just thought I needed a lot of reassurance around germs. So food was really scary. And so was eating at school and everything else. So I think around fourth and fifth grade, they noticed it when I went to the pediatrician. And I remember having to be brought there quite often. And then I remember my mom having to continuously weigh me at home and she, I think hung it up against her shower wall as a, like, you need to hit like the appropriate mile markers for your like height and age. I ran with it in the other direction. So it kind of just got fueled by accident. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's kind of, it's changed forms along the way, but it's, it's kind of been there since. Um, and, and that like, I just, cause I know you from super feelers, like that's been such a big part of your journey for sure. Yeah. Especially because it hid a lot of the dysregulation. Like I learned that I could use that to like calm myself and then I could appear put together and between appearing put together 
and being a perfectionist and therefore getting good grades, like I kind of was able to just slip through the radar a little bit. Totally. Have I ever told you that like, I, I'm pretty sure that like my self-harm and my binge eating are like very interconnected because when I stopped self-harming, my binge eating got crazy. I like, I switch all the time. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I know I've never talked to a like doctor about that, but like, I noticed it. I remember the bus stop I was sitting at, at Metrotown Skytrain station where I, I was like, oh my God, I just realized that these two things are connected and one happens or the other. And I, yeah, it's crazy. So I, I, I feel you. It's just the other way around for me. Right. I mean, it's, it's kind of swapped in college. There was a lot of back and forth and back and forth and also competition within the dance team and impulsivity around substance use and sexual activity. And by the time I was finished with college, I was a walking textbook definition of VPD. Like I had maxed out a credit card in like a day, like, like all of the various mile markers. I can alienate a friend faster than I can say my own name. So like all of the things that like pretty heavy indicators, but I still decided to go to grad school and do nothing about it because I could still keep up appearances and everything was theoretically fine. And your undergrad was in psych, right? No, it was um, communications and theater with a Mm. minor in Hebrew language. No way. Wow. That's super interesting. I didn't know that. I just assumed it was in psych because your master's is in psych or counseling. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cause I mean, you say, oh, I wasn't going to do anything or I wasn't doing anything about it. I feel like anybody that goes into psych, either in their undergrad or their master's that there's a reason, you know what I mean? Like you're doing self-discovery, even if it's not like intentional. Yeah. I, um, didn't do psych undergrad because the program was really large and I felt lost in a lecture hall. Fair. So I had taken Psych 101 and felt we were given numbers. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, I feel like Hebrew studies, probably not a big lecture hall of like hundreds of people would be my guess. Absolutely not. <laughs> That's super cool, though. The only problem with Hebrew is that it fell. I was at, like on the school paper and it fell the morning after our press time. Oh, so brutal. I would be walking in after an all nighter every week. And on some weeks when I was very tired, I would suddenly remember my high school Spanish and mix them up. That's easy to do with languages. You just like completely change languages halfway through. And the combination of Spanish and Hebrew in one word is a very weird feeling. Yeah. Yeah. They're not quite similar, although I don't know what the background is. No, no, (laughs) there's no. I was like, I've sung in Hebrew a lot, but I don't know how related it is to Spanish. Not Um, at all. (laughs) So anyway, sorry, I digress. I kind of went in a weird direction there. So you, (laughs) um, you went to grad school, you did counseling. Yeah. And so during my first year of grad school, I started looking for a job because I didn't want to have to sublet my apartment to come home that summer. I wanted to stay where I was, build community. And I wanted experience in the field. So I got invited to interview at a residential. um, And I 
Doing that what re- residential treatment facility, just wanting to say for people that don't necessarily like work in the field, I just always try and clarify. So residential treatment facility for mental health and substance use or just mental health? Uh, no, more for like various dysregulation behaviors. Um, mm, okay. It's specialized in teaching DVT um, to folks who are either diagnosed or displaying traits of borderline personality disorder. Which is unreal that that's where your like first job was. Yeah. And it wasn't an intentional choice. I mean, there were a lot of intentional choices, but like that was the first interview and it ended up working out wonderfully. And but so I did also... you know, I guess it was, at, that this was the summer of your first year. Mm-hmm. So you would have known about BPD at this point and you may have known about DBT or no. Mm, not really. I had like a vague idea. But it was probably and all I, negative would be my guess. Oh yeah. I had a professor stand on it, take his shoes off and stand on a table and tell us never to treat those individuals. Um, but then I get to this interview and I realize I'm being asked these questions that I am describing my own self. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, oh boy. Um, and that was the first time you ever like put two and two together. Yeah. I mean, I kind of probably put it together before that, but that's the first like time I was really like suddenly very aware that like the walls were closing in and like, maybe I should have been a patient there. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like, wait a minute. I meet all of the criteria for this place. (laughs) Yeah. When the first question was, why do people self-harm? I knew I was in for it. That is a hard question to answer. Like, even as somebody who has a self-harm history, like my whole life, like that is not an easy question to answer. But it just went from there. So, right. Yeah. If that's question one, I'd be like, uh, that was a hundred percent question one. I'll see myself. out. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was going to then go back towards my academic background. And it certainly did not. I mean, Hey, you know what? Good for them. If you have a patient population, like they do to, to like avoid the textbook questions and get right into the really complex stuff, like good for them. Cause that probably rules out a lot of people that like can't deal. I don't think they actually asked me to sit down or my name until I had answered two questions regarding self-harm. Wow. Interesting. I was terrified, but you took the job. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And what was your role? Like, was it a counselor, but like just so as a... I was a counselor um, and I was there for a while. So I worked there until 2016. Um, and you started there? 2009. Oh my God. So like seven years. Yeah. Wow. So okay. I went through and I ended up becoming medication trained to dispense, not prescribe. Um, I was going to say, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and I ran groups. So I was essentially teaching DBT. I also was trained as a skills coach. Everybody on staff was. And so we were all trained together, like clinicians included for two to three hours every week. And then the clinicians came in to our shift change reports. And so if we were struggling with burnout or compassion fatigue or anything else, we could ask questions or receive help on how to skills coach somebody more effectively. 
So I learned DBT fairly quickly. Um, you'd, ha- you'd have to. And like, yeah. were you, so when you were learning DBT as like part of your job, were you thinking to apply these skills? And sorry, I always do this, but dialectical behavior therapy is DBT. Cause I know people get it really confused with CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. But anyways, when you were learning the skills as on a, as a counselor and like as a group lead, were you applying them to yourself or were you thinking like, no, help me. Okay. So I was, I probably should have received a master's in compartmentalization. (laughs) Same. So like I could speak the language. I could write my shift notes. I could describe everything behaviorally without any judgment words. Real good at that. But would I come home and tell you anything? No, not at all. Really effective. Hmm. But like kind of slowly, I started wondering if like, maybe despite all of our professors being like, do not look through the DSM and diagnose yourself. Like, do not do that. Rule number one of psych 101. (laughs) Right. But as I continued to feel like I was mirroring myself every day at work, I started kind of being a little more curious about it. And what was that like for you? Because like, to me, seeing other people with BPD, when I was kind of first diagnosed and starting to like, get over my denial of it, it was like such a profound experience to be like looking in a mirror of somebody else getting dysregulated and being like, holy shit, that is what I look like when I'm dysregulated. Did that come to you? Not quite because the patient population was younger. Um, Hmm. Like under 18. We did have patients in college, but we started as young as 13. So, oh, wow. Interesting. Okay. We had a fairly large range. Mm-hmm. And they um, were all in groups together? Yeah, because we kept the program really small. So, the classroom setting was, you know, very small. All of the activities were really small. And we had a really high staff to patient ratio. Mm. And so we were able to do extended skills coaching, exposure outings, and kind of stuff like that. That's so cool. Oh my gosh. It was how really long was cool. the program approximately? Like, was it a set? They had to commit to 30 days. And the patient themselves, even if they're under 18, they had to be on board to yeah, be allowed in. Like they I say, of course, have, but that's not But actually... like their parents could not put them in this program. Good. That doesn't work. No. But most stayed for significantly longer. We had different levels of care so they could eventually like be in the community, but also living mm-hmm. in a step-down house. That's awesome. Yeah. Those were the ones that were harder to see. Right. Yeah. Cause there's yeah. probably years, right? Like there's, I would yeah. assume in, in those second stage housing, it's probably years. Yeah. Yeah. And I was part of the development of one of those. And that's that. I mean, I was just looking in the mirror that whole time. Mm. Like when I was part of the staff that was opening the house, I was kind of overwhelmed all the time. Right. So at what point in this journey of being a DBT clinician, did you seek out your own diagnosis? Like, yeah. (laughs) So... I really went about everything 
in the most nonsensical way imaginable, which was that I was doing grad school, working, and then taking breaks for eating disorder treatment as needed. Okay. So you knew, like, you were fully aware of, like, the fact that you had some mental health challenges, like OCD, anxiety, and eating disorders. It was just the BPD part that you were in, like, kind of denial about. Yeah, I also didn't have any, like, formal understanding of it until I started graduate school. Right. And had nobody ever thrown around, like, the words borderline traits to you in, like, any of your previous treatments? So if I had opened my mouth, maybe. Right. You just said like I. It took a very long time for me to talk. Like, I I think. The first treatment center I spoke in was in 2010. Oh, my gosh. So like I just. Stayed over scheduled. And like hid behind commitments and perfectionism. Yep. Been that, been there. Still on that, I think. Because I won't say no if I say I'm going to show up somewhere. Same. And it's, that's painful to live with perfectionism like that. I struggle with that every day. We should do an episode on that. (laughs) So slowly I started talking to my therapist and kind of getting curious about it, probably 2012 ish. And I was kind of like, So about that, like, I, I, I think some things are adding up here and I'm not really liking where this is going. Wait, wait, wait. So I need to get my timeline right here. So you started working at the center in 2009 Mm -hmm. and in 2012 is when you first actually came to this realization and started looking into it. No, no. It was the first time I acknowledged it. Acknowledged. Okay. Sorry. Yes. You're right. That is a very, very, very distinct thing. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's a long time. I, again, it took me to 2010 to speak in treatment. So yeah, fair enough. I think probably within the first year I would have been able to confidently know that I had the diagnosis. But you just weren't um, willing to say anything or like, or like acknowledge it yourself. Right. I don't really like radical acceptance. How dare you? You No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So I think I just hid behind the fact that I was still highly functional and it wasn't impacting my grades. I was still holding a job. I was fine by everybody's standards societally. Oh, Emily, our story, like, I, I feel this so hard. And it's, I feel like people that like, see people who are perfectionists who are struggling with BPD sometimes think like, oh, you don't understand how it is to be dysregulated. And you don't understand. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't get me wrong. I understand that you just never see it. There's a big difference there. Yeah, like the one shining example. In the first apartment I lived in, I found a very large bug in my shower very late at night because I was still doing homework and I got completely dysregulated. I took every shoe that I owned, which were many, and threw them, all this bug in my bathtub at about three o'clock in the morning. My roommate at the time was a nurse. She thought I was like hurt. She comes running in. 
I am pointing at a bug on the wall and screaming. And she's like, dude, you're fine. She was like, dude, what that, like, what in the, like, it's the middle of the night. She did not appreciate me for that. She had to go to work by seven. And I'm still doing homework and I really just wanted to take a freaking shower. Yeah. And I need her to kill the bug. So, like, I could hide it most of the time. But I was also self-harming deliberately in places that nobody would see when I was at work. And I was planning my eating disorder behaviors around the times that I knew I was going to have to model eating out or eating in a normalized fashion. And it was becoming a lot to manage. Mm -hmm. And so I finally sort of mentioned it to my therapist in a very roundabout way. And I was, I was kind of like, um, hmm, about this. I'm not sure how I feel about it. And I don't know if it's true, but like, maybe we should talk about it, but also maybe not. And it kind of looked like that for a while where I would like open the door to like start talking about it and then panic. And then we would not be able to talk about it for like another month or two. And an incident would happen at work. And I was like, I, I've been there. Like with a patient. Like mm-hmm. in their own dysregulation and in their own, like not an interpersonal event. Right, um, right, right. I also started to realize, like as I was finishing school and everything else, that the second I was officially diagnosed, I had an ethical dilemma on my hands. And I was not really sure how I wanted to handle it because I, I mean, I knew that once I was formally diagnosed, I could not sit at that job. Like I did not feel okay about it because I was not in an okay place myself. Right. If I had my symptoms under control. It would be completely different, mm-hmm. but I had never received, or at that point, specialized treatment. Right. And I was not applying skills to myself. I was not in that mindset yet. And so to right, stay, not quite leading by example, right? Yeah. And I also like was still taking off time every like six months for eating disorder treatment. Like let's, you know, I was I still had to get stabilized every couple of months. So I knew that it wouldn't be the right thing to do. But that job meant so much to me. Especially because I have no sense of self. But it right. was a thing that was an anchor. I felt valued. It had meaning to me. I was the one that was strangely calm in a crisis. And it was the place where I could actually mask my internal experience without trouble. However, as all things do, it, it kind of came to a head. And in 2015, I, the words had yet to be officially said to me. But one of the worst attempts that I made to leave this earth was happening. And I, it was medically not the most severe, but it was the most severe as far as dysregulation, impulsivity, and just your perfect storm of being malnourished and just chaos. Right. Um, and like maybe the most severe intention wise, potentially. Absolutely. Yeah. 
It was also set off by somebody taking maternity leave. And that finding out abandonment at a hundred percent and finding out in a very roundabout way. Like mm-hmm. I hadn't seen this person yet because the fields overlapped. I got the email that was like, I'm leaving this practice. It didn't say that she was maintaining her private practice. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. So it was a, it was one of, one of your clinicians, not one of your coworkers. Oh Oh, my God. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. I didn't clarify. I should have clarified that. No, it was one of my providers. Oh my God. That's even worse. But I got the email at work. And so I spent Uh, that entire night. All I remember from that night is just like thinking about the fact that I wanted to remove myself from earth. Mm-hmm. Um, that abandonment hits hard. Like people, don't, yeah. people don't consider like how much abandonment affects us. Oh yeah. And also I should say, clarify perceived abandonment. This wasn't like, it wasn't that she was actually abandoning you. It's not on her, but like, yeah, perceived. Abandonment. No, but what was not in the email was that, or at least to my recollection was that the private practice was still staying. Right. And so I think it was an email that I actually received on my work email address because she consulted for us sometimes. So I held it together that night. I got home and that was the end of that. In true form, I did not tell my therapist until about three days later, at which I was officially made known that this diagnosis was real and happening and true. I was also hospitalized. And I started becoming very encouraged to leave my job by everybody. And one weekend at that hospital, because there for maybe a couple of weeks, there was an attending who was not the usual. It was just like somebody on for that weekend. He's meeting with everybody, going through the standard. Do you have questions for me? Blah, blah, blah. He happened to have looked at my chart. Like your medical chart. Yeah. And he looked at me and he goes, you're not going to make it a year. (gasps) First of all, that's a breach of confidentiality because if he's looking at your medical chart, sorry, can I clarify? Yeah. He's, you were at work when this happened. No, no, no. I am so sorry. I am probably. Okay. No, no. So I got really dysregulated at work and had to hold it together. Oh, okay. So he was an attending when you were in the hospital. Thank you. Okay. Got it. I think that that was my bad. I think because I worked in one. and Yes, exactly. hundred percent. It's all good. Thank you for clarifying. Sorry about that. It's okay. My dramatic gasp was not valid, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm all about dramatic gasps. So you're fine. So he looked at me and he was like, you're not going to make it here. And I kind of looked at him and I was like, excuse me, sir. Like what, what? is making you say this to me. Like I'm sitting in his office. I've never seen you before in my life. And he told me with zero expression on his face and he had no bedside manner. He was the meanest attending. And I say that having been to many hospitals, he was one of just the meanest attendings I've ever had to work with. He goes, he goes, your symptoms are so severe and you're smart enough that by the end of the, like this year, you're going to have taken your own life. He did not 
tell me the diagnosis he was giving me. He did dysregulate me enough to pick up a chair, want to throw it. I put it back down. But to go to my room and slam my door very loudly. And so he wrote down your BPD, your borderline personality disorder diagnosis, but didn't. He just you. handed, no, he handed me a sheet of paper. Oh, so we didn't had, have the guts. Yeah, no, it had like the nine criteria mm-hmm. on it. And he was like, you're, you are this basically. And he goes, but you're smart enough to know how to like carry it out if you choose to. And he goes, I'm, I'm guessing you're going to choose to. My God. It was like, like, what on earth? Thank you for instilling hope in me. Like I'm already in a locked facility. Yeah. And like, there's so many things wrong with that. Like a, I know I'm smart. I don't need you to tell me that because you've been talking to me for five minutes. B, I've tried this before and haven't succeeded. So that probably felt like a big slap in the face. And like, how dare you tell somebody that they're going to kill themselves in a year? That's it not also felt fair. reinforcing of the fact that I knew how. Right. Yeah. And that I think was more damaging than anything long-term because that voice is still here where mm-hmm. I know that somebody yelled at me telling me that I'm smart enough to actually do this. And like, that's really hard when that passive echo gets to be a little bit louder. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's the physician. He knew whatever. He was the one in charge. Yeah. He had a, and, and it was a male in a position of authority. Totally. So at that hospital, there was a lot of conversation about like what it meant to me to be at work and all of that stuff. And I had a lot of big feelings about it because I loved being there and felt useful. And I knew I was good at what I did. And I knew I was good at what I did because I couldn't use it on myself, but I could use it in every conversation with my friends and parents and everybody else but me. But verbal de-escalation was like, I was, I was good at it at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was kind of this internal battle for a while because I had no idea who I was. I had already graduated school. Like the what's next question was like big. And I also didn't want to make a decision that would har- like harm other people. So it, I spent about six months feeling like I was living in in purgatory. Um, right. I dropped my hours down. That was the first thing I did was I dropped my hours down significantly so that at least it wasn't like going against every value I had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I could go to therapy more often. So I tried to like sort of navigate again. It's that compart- compartmentalizing you were talking about, right? Yep. But when one thing shuts itself down, the other one pops up. So now we have BPD and an eating disorder and self-harm. Right. And so like at that point, we were into 2016 and I did choose to leave my job because I knew, first of all, I needed help. And second of all, all three things were out, out of control. Like they right. were controlling me at that point. And I did not 
have the ability to self-regulate enough to make it through the shift that I had at work. Yeah, totally. And like, I, I'm all for people with BPD working with people who have BPD. Like, I don't think that that inherently is a problem, but you're right. Like at that point, you have to be able to keep regulated yourself enough to like help the other people be regulated. Right. Nobody, nobody that's dysregulated is going to be helped by somebody who's massively dysregulated. Yeah. And so a lot of the people also struggled with various comorbid diagnoses. And so we did have patients that struggle with eating disorders. However, while I kind of also contemplated that on and off, there were periods where mine was stable and I did feel okay. And there were also periods where we didn't have any patients that presented with any symptoms. So it felt less conflicting and they, like those patients didn't activate any of my symptoms. Like I, I could kind of put that away, which is why that in its like in, in and of itself did not cause me to make that choice because, you know, it was kind of always like in the back of my head, like, am I doing the right thing by the people that I work for? Am I harming or helping? So it didn't, it didn't kind of blow up until it all really blew up. Like until then I, I was still being hospitalized for eating disorder stuff, but they were short term and then I would be okay. Right. It was like mostly medical, like getting you back to a healthy, like functioning essentially. Yeah. And I was also working with a full team and I was being medically monitored and I was like back in sports and and stuff like that. So it didn't feel as, I guess, emergent or like life altering at that point because it wasn't, I wasn't stopping any of my normal daily activities. But once everything kind of just like flew that night, like it be like it just felt really wrong. And I hated having to do it. And I quit. And I like I, this is the part that like was so painful. I did not give two weeks' notice. Mm-hmm. I had called the treatment facility and they had a spot for me. So I had my doctor write me a medical necessity note and I gave it in and I boarded a plane. Oh, wow. And like, that was the worst part of it. That was the absolute worst part of it. But you needed to do it, right? Like, yeah, I totally get why that would be really, really hard and really shitty and you'd feel bad about that. But at the same time, like either way, you needed to help yourself first. Yeah, I just, first of all, didn't think they were going to have a spot like the next day because places where you have to buy plane tickets, like usually it takes a little while. I also figured that I would have that time to have closure. And so it could be an environment that when I did stabilize, I could go back to if I chose to. And so it felt like I kind of just burned bridges without meaning to. And, and did anybody know that you had BPD? No, not a knew. single person. And they still don't. Mm-mm. I mean, I, I have 
a public Instagram account where it's never mentioned. I don't mention it on Facebook. I don't really yeah, like, think anybody knows. How would they know, I guess, right? There are times that on some of my more public socials, I will mention things that reference eating disorders from the scope of like, hey, let's like not comment on everybody else's like bodies, like, you know, and it'll yeah. be like a general like PSA, but I don't really tell my own story online. Well, you are now. <laughs> yeah. But like, it, like I've always been pretty private with it, um, which is probably why it took me until 2010 to speak. Yeah. Like it, it only worked when I was ready for it to work, but it also only worked after a lot of failed attempts mm-hmm. and a lot of getting to the point of like just desperation. Well, and it's, it's your, like, it's your statement of like, you did the next right thing, right? That's you that always says that. So for those of you who aren't in super feelers, Emily is amazing. And like, always has so much amazing stuff to contribute, which like no doubt, because this is literally what you did for a living. Plus you have all this lived experience. But one of the things that she always says to people who are struggling and to herself when she's struggling is like, you're here. And like, that's you doing the next right thing. And I will never forget that in my entire life, Emily, like, because we all have to just do the next right thing. And the next right thing is maybe it's quitting your job and getting on a plane to go to a treatment. Maybe it's taking a nap. Maybe it's coming to super feelers. Maybe it's sharing your story on a podcast so that your story can change other people's lives. Like all of these things are the next right thing. And just like continuing to keep going is so, so valuable. And I'm so glad that you did all of those right things because you're important. Thank you. I mean, that, that sort of like step-by-step approach is kind of the only way I've made it through because I don't, I'm not really a big affirmation person and I'm not really like, like, I don't, I'm very goal oriented, but I can then also get very overwhelmed by like all of the goals and like my to-do list, have to-do lists. Yep. Straight up. I now have one list on my phone that says, this is how, this is how you don't make things worse. And those are my everyday tasks. Okay. So I feel like this is literally the perfect way to wrap up an episode is for you to tell us what's on that list. And maybe we all need this if you're comfortable, of course. Yeah, that's fine. So my list is in, in my phone. I it's in like the reminder section. So I can like check it off. And then I can undo all of it every night before I go to bed so that it's ready for the next day. Amazing. I have three things pinned to the top, which are journal, go to the gym, and hydrate, which each have their own goals. And then I put emoji check marks next to them if I've met them. And then my providers can ask, and I'll actually remember. Um, kind of like a DBT diary almost. Yeah. And those are just things that I have to generally keep track of for my own wellness. Like if I'm going to the gym too often, we're going to say red zone. And so that was going to be my first question was like, so if these are things you do every day, does that gym thing impact your eating disorder? Or is it just like you, like you have to think about it or something? So the gym is actually not every day. Oh, okay. 
which is why the checkmark system is working right now because I have limited permission. Mm. I think I joined about a month ago and it's the first time I've been trusted in an actual gym Mm -hmm. since probably 2007. Well, it's really interesting because I, um, I have an Apple watch and I love my Apple watch and, um, my counselor about two years ago, three years ago was like, Lori, like you need to ditch your Apple watch because this perfectionism brain along with an eating disorder brain is not good. And she's like, you should not be out at midnight getting the last of your steps in before the clock turns to midnight. You know what I mean? I turned it off. Yeah, no. And she told me to, and, and she's like, and I was like, no, but I've, I've hit my exercise ring for the last 472 days or whatever. And she was like, Lori, like you need to not hit your exercise ring for a day. And it took me probably a year to actually be able to do that. And now I'm like, finally so happy that I can like, I can leave it for a day if I need to. Um, but like, I bought myself so an hard. Apple watch. I bought myself the Apple watch to get rid of my Fitbit. But it does the same thing. No, but it's not, I could make it so that it wasn't in my face. Right. Yeah. Whereas literally like you can see mine, like mine is still my exercise thing in my face. Yeah. So my whole thing, you can't see mine. Um, yeah. So I earned gym privileges back, but the in parentheses, it says how many times I'm doing those things. Nice. Okay. So it has like the amount of water that my nutritionist wants me to drink, how many times I'm allowed to go to the gym, what my journaling goal is, stuff like that. Um, and then every day it's my morning routine, which is like, get up, make my bed. So I don't get back in it, feed the cats, wash up, get dressed. And and those, while those seem small, like to me, I get really stuck in all of those places. So they're all on the list so that I can keep like moving through. Because if I know that I have something else to check off, I'll want to, I'll, I'm goal oriented enough that I'll want to do it. Hundred percent. So I have like take vitamins, take your medication, all of that. I should put take vitamins on mine because that is the one thing that I cannot keep my shit together for. It actually really works. I use um Google Tasks um mm-hmm. and I that has changed my life in the last year because especially for school and like I you know how I have really strong social media like boundaries. I have a thing every six days it tells me to check my Facebook messages, my text messages, and my emails. Because otherwise, it's so overwhelming to have this constant like, oh my God, I'm behind on emails that I, if it's not on my checkbox thing that day, I don't have to do it. And like, yeah, I think we're very similar in that way. Yeah. And this one can alert you. Like I can put the time and the date of something. Right. Yeah. So I also will have like, like currently I'm working on a mindfulness journal and it's like one prompt a day. So I have that on there. Litter boxes, which is on the once a week thing. And then I have a couple of really generalized ones that I like and that help me remember to leave my house, which is reach out to one person, use my brain in some way, find at least one thing that brings me laughter, joy, or like smile. And then it has my entire night routine and like the order in which I do it. That's so awesome. It's medication, turn on the playlist I use which, and I, I use music in the shower, so it's distracting and I don't have to think about all of the things that make me go bananas. Yep. Um, I can't have a shower without a podcast on literally can't do it. So I have a, I have a playlist that I use same place every time. 
Um, so it's medication, playlist turns on, get in the shower, pajamas are already set out, then it's comfort show and bed. So all of that is also on here and also medication. So it's all laid out for me. That's amazing. And you find that that helps you stay regulated when you have that routine. It helps me self-structure my day Mm -hmm. because it like encourages me to remember to leave the house every day. Part of why the gym was given back to me was partly physical therapy, but also like it was a motivator. Like it would get me out. Mm -hmm. I mean, hydration alone. Like if you don't hydrate properly, your brain just like shuts off. And then you don't, you're not thirsty because your brain's, I don't know, my, or at least for me, my brain's all messed up. I, I don't get thirsty until it's too late. And it's like, I'm hangry, but I, it's because I haven't hydrated, you know? I'm laughing because you can't see this, but there are three water bottles next to me all full. Look because- at this jug that I use. It's like the size of my torso. And like, I drink like two of those a day because I can't otherwise. It's that I have such, such ADHD. And I know that this is a symptom of that, where I'll go into my kitchen, I'll grab another water bottle. I'm genuinely thirsty. I will take probably three or four sips of it. I'll put it down on my coffee table. And somehow I will magically forget about it by the time I go back to the kitchen the next time. Right. Yeah. So like having it on that list every time and it's pinned to the top. So I see it every time I open this thing, which is my reminder to like hit. I stay away from numbers in general. Mm-hmm. except for this because if I don't have a certain number of ounces of water my body does not work totally so like that's the only number that I use at this point in time and it kind of works and I mean like let's be real ounces of water is not the end of the world to track you know what I mean like because it's really hard for like our bodies to tell us how much water we need Right. I mean, for I mean, me, like, for a little while, it was a problem mm. because I could substitute things. Yeah. And it just wasn't great. But now I got, I I got in trouble. I got in yeah. trouble from a dietitian for drinking too much water because she's I like, have... look, like you're, you're clearly drinking water to like compensate for eating food. And I was like, no, I just love water. She's like, no, you have to drink less water. And I was like, fuck you. I love water. But but yeah, I like I've, I've had, I've had issues on both ends of the spectrum where like it's either too much or not enough or like, but we it's almost like we're black and white thinkers until I learned that this was a symptom of my ADHD and not actually behaviorally driven. Right, right, right. That yeah. was, it was like a big enlightening, like when my dietitian was like, she asked me straight out one day. She's like, how many water bottles are in your eyesight at any given time? And I was like, um, four. She's like, yeah, that's, that's not a behavior. That's, that's ADHD. And like, we right. need to, like, we need to work on that, that's which is part of yeah. why this list helps because especially in the morning, like I won't move through that routine. I will get stuck sitting on my bed looking for the phone that I probably put under the covers when I made my bed. It's happened more than I would like to admit. I have no doubt. I've actually started this really weird habit now where I just like forget my phone at home all the time. And I get to my car and I'm like, 
where the hell's my phone? And I have to go back up to my apartment and get my phone. And it's like, I don't know what happened in the last like three months, but I've never, ever had that issue before. <laughs> so weird. Yeah. I just like, I will get so distracted in the morning by nothing. I will look at the weather and then I will sit on my bed and be like, I don't know what I'm doing myself. And it will have nothing to do with anything. And that is exactly the same principle of having a million water bottles and not knowing what to do with them. But so, I mean, it helps. And every night I can check it all off. That's awesome. That's such a good skill. I really love that. I like that I can put fun ones on there. Totally. So, yeah, like, so it's not all like mundane. Yeah. Or like for a while it was like move my body in a way that felt good. Mm-hmm. Or like listen to one thing that like makes me like heart happy. Mm-hmm. So things like that I have added and taken off and changed this list as it's kind of been with me for a while. Mm-hmm. Um the thing that has stayed this entire time is find one thing that makes me happy and brings me joy. That's awesome. So that's it's nice to reflect on that before one. bed. Yeah, for sure. And like, that's the thing is if you reflect on it every day, there is going to be something, whether it's like your cat yawning and being cute or like whatever, right. Just like one small thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Emily, thank you so much. I know we barely even got to like your full story at all. So we're probably going to have to do like a part two of like the rest of your story of how you kind of went through treatment and learned DBT skills and all that. But this has been super, super interesting. And I already know your story. So like for people that, I mean, I know most of it for people that don't know your story, like it's going to be fascinating. So thank you so much for coming on. And, um, thank you for being such a dedicated member of the super feelers community. We all love you so much. I cannot wait till we're back. October 17th. We're back. Yeah. The time time has changed slightly, by the way, for super feelers. The time of super feelers has changed by half an hour to make it earlier for people on the East coast. So just be careful about that. It's 5.30 PST now, not 6 PM PST. It's, it's on the event, right? You should find it, but I just want to make that. It's already in my phone. I'm trying to make you guys happy and make it easier for East coasters, (laughs) but uh, yeah. Anyways. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Emily. And um, we'll talk soon. Thank you for having me. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey, and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.